Welcome, friends, to yet another episode of Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is September 11th, and I've got a great show for you this week. Before I get into the show, as usual, I'm going to talk about a couple things that are on my mind, a couple notes I may want to go over. First... Let me throw out there, once again, this coming October, the week of Halloween, I'm putting out a Greater Magic episode. So if you have any questions that you would like answered or addressed, points that you would like me and my guests to go over, send them to me. You can email me at info at ninecentspodcast.com. You can send me a message through Facebook or go to ninecentspodcast.com. Facebook page and post them in the forum there. Uh, Letters to the Devil forum also, and you can send me a message there as well. Essentially, anywhere that I am is yet another avenue that you can send me those questions. I've got a few uh, great ones so far, and I'm always looking for more. So, be a part of history here, people, and uh, get in on it. I also wanted to talk about uh, brewing. So, this week, I was very excited. We got our resources together, and we decided to make our next, uh, well, first of this year, but our second time doing it, batch of Campbell wines. So we have a grape vine in my front yard, and every year we harvest it uh, around the last week of uh, August, first week of September time frame. This year we were poached. We had some birds assault our grape vines, and then also my neighbor tells us we had some midnight individuals stealing the grapes. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether I believe that, though I wouldn't put it past some of the people in my neighborhood. I do know that the birds were the number one uh, thieves of my grapes, which pisses me off to no end. But it's a part of the reality of the world we live in, so you have to make do. Next year, we're going to be planting some new vines in the backyard, um, some different grape types, so we can you know, do that as well. But we were lucky. My neighbor has a grapevine in his backyard, and he allowed us to get a bunch of grapes. The downside, we were planning on putting out maybe five gallons of of wine this year, and we didn't harvest nearly enough out of his vine. So we have one gallon. Uh, it's going to be this time next year before we even try it. So I'll let you know how that goes. Uh, We did break into our last year's wine, and though that was my first year doing it, it was still definitely drinkable. It was very much more potent than I had, like, imagined it would be. Uh, But I've learned an immeasurable amount since then, so about homebrewing and winemaking and stuff like that. 
So I'm fully confident that the batch we're doing this year is going to be magnificent, or at least as magnificent as we can make. <laughs> Let me talk about the gigantic gorilla in the room. It is September 11th, and you see everywhere on social networking, in the media, everyone is talking about the tragedy that 9-11 was <clears throat> a decade ago. And I don't know if I'm the only one here, but I'm getting pretty sick and tired of hearing these personal stories about why 9-11 meant so much to me. Shut up. Like, just shut up. I'm so tired of hearing people whine about something that happened a decade ago. When, as a country, are we going to let the past be the past? And if we're going to claim on to something, how about we claim on to victory? Cling on to victory. You know what I mean? So instead of celebrating the day, and, and this could be, you know, speaking to a larger human culture here, you have those sad, sad Christians just hanging on to their dead savior on the very instrument that killed him. <laughs> a rotting tree. And they wear that around their neck. I'm not about to do that. I think that's a little bit sad. Okay, I, I think it's a lot sad. I think it's it's really pathetic that you would hang on to the saddest part of your mem. How about, you know, since this is the only life we have, we celebrate the highlights. Um, how about we celebrate a bullet going through Osama bin Laden's head? Now, that's a day that I think would be worth 10 years from now celebrating. Vengeance, not defeat. I mean, if we're going to stand around and whine and moan, I don't want to be a part of it. That's pathetic. And how about those people that always bring that, like I mentioned before, that personal element to it. This is self-serving, hyper-personal, I-want-to-be-the-center-of-attention-hold-my-hand BS. It's disgusting that we cater to this type of a person. Now, I get that you may have known someone who knew someone who had met someone who lived next door to someone who may have been driving by the building when somebody died. And you may even have a very personal, your father, your mother, your sister, whatever, story of someone who died in that tragedy. But guess what? You need to move on. I'm tired of hearing about it. I don't care. To be honest, I didn't care when it happened. What pissed me off were not the lives lost. It was the strike against us as a country. Now, that may sound cold. Bear with me for a minute here. When I was in high school, I had a friend commit suicide. And in all fairness, he was a friend, but he wasn't a best friend. I was really best friends with him in middle school and on high school. We sort of started drifting apart a little bit. Though we still were in contact and we still hung out a little bit. We shared a locker and, and everything. Uh, we just weren't as close as we used to be. You know, that's the way with friends and stuff. So I found out that he killed himself. And immediately, like everyone else, I personalize the situation. And I try to capitalize on it in my own sick way. And not a lot of people are going to like hearing this. But it's the truth, and it's what people have been doing with 9-11 since it happened. They try to capitalize on the tragedy to put themselves in the center of attention. 
and it's disgusting and it's sad and it's pathetic, but we all do it in our own ways. It's very human to do it. Uh, I raged against the machine, as it were, as a young man after that happened. I wasn't sure how to deal with losing a friend. I didn't believe in an afterlife, and so it was challenging for me to reconcile losing someone needlessly, as I saw it. And it culminated in police arresting me in my home. And when they were taking me away from my home and would later end up throwing me in the hospital where I would spend the next three months dealing with it in my own way, they... The police officer told me something that has stuck with me since. Um, And he said, why are you doing this? Why are you acting this way? I said, because my friend killed himself and I'm dealing with it the only way I know how. And he said, do you think the guy on the corner of your street cares if your friend killed himself? Do you think the guy down at 7-Eleven cares that your friend killed himself? I said, well, no, probably not. He's like, no, he doesn't care. I don't care that your friend killed himself. Because you need to take personal responsibility for your actions. You can't blame your bad actions on something that someone else did and expect everyone else to understand or accept it when they're not affected personally by it. And that was the first time I ever really thought of tragedy as a personal and, and that may sound a little naive, but I never saw it as a personal situation. I always thought you were supposed to be, I don't know, taken care of through tragedy. But really, as responsible human beings, you're the one that deals with it, so you have to deal with it. I don't care if your father jumped from that building on 9-11. I think it sucks. I can, I can, I can sympathize with you. But my sympathy only goes so far. And ten years later, hearing about it still? You're pathetic. Seriously. Get over it. We were assaulted as a country by fanatics because they believed that America was doing some really terrible things. And you know what? Taking the sheet off our eyes, we were doing some terrible things. Did it warrant being attacked like that? Objectively, I I could see it. I don't think it was worth the civilian loss of life that, you know, civilians, not military people, who had nothing to do with anything political or um, militaristic that was the cause behind them striking us. But uh, I don't like it, but I can understand it. I think that's important to be able to do as a human being, understand motivation. And even nowadays, it's hard for people to say stuff like that because they feel like they have to somehow back the country they live in even if they're in utmost wrong. Now, in this particular case, I don't think what we've ever really done is wrong. I think we've done some dirty things. I think we've done some negative things. But I don't think it's wrong. What we do as a country is a very American thing, is, is we change the world for our own perceived good. Damn everyone else. That's why we get attacked. That's why we have people talking smack about us. I, I went into length about this in my um, uh, Independence Day episode. 
uh, we are the great Satan for a reason, you know. So I, I don't apologize for things when they happen, but I do understand why others would be upset for it. And that's fine. Everyone wants to seek revenge. Everyone. So they struck us. And we struck them back. And we finally, after so long, did it. We finally capped the guy who planned it. Awesome. Congratulations. It's over. Can we just stop pretending like we were some innocent bystanders doing nothing to get attacked? Can we stop pretending that we care about everyone's individual story? Seriously. (laughs) As a country, we are going through this identity crisis. Should we have a massive government influence? Should we not have a massive government influence? Should we have national pride or should we have individual pride? And wherever you stand on those issues, we need to understand one very, very basic thing. We're all human beings. We're all self-serving. And you put us together as a whole and nothing changes. We're still self-serving. Stop acting like we're some divinely created society that's greater than every other vermin on the planet. We're monsters. Own it. It will make you a better one. (laughs) That's the way I see it. I don't want to hear any more pathetically sad stories about people putting their own personal tragedy in the center limelight so they can somehow feel important because they were there or they had some sort of connection to tragedy. That doesn't make you big. It doesn't make you interesting. Nobody cares. No one. Anyone that says that they do care is really just trying to ride your pathetic coattails. Look in the mirror. Have a little bit of self-respect. Work through it like a human being and stop crying over it. If you're going to celebrate something, celebrate vengeance. Celebrate victory. Don't celebrate defeat. Do not celebrate weakness because that's not who we are. Anyone who claims differently is lying to themselves. We're monsters. We're bad. We are very evil. Own it. I do. Alright, so how about we talk about what's coming up in the show, eh? Today in The Devil's Advocate, we're going to be talking about Apocalypse Now, an article by Peter H. Gilmore in his book, The Satanic Scriptures. In Infernal Informant, I'm going to be talking about two articles, once again, Registering the Poor to Vote is Un-American, and Apocalyptic GOP is Dragging Us into a Civil War. In Creature Feature, I have a very special interview, Reverend Shiva Rodriguez, truly a very, very powerful woman, and we're going to be talking about some of her influences, professional life, and what you can expect from her in the future. And I don't think we're going to have time for the Bizarre of the Bizarre this week yet again. Uh, But if we do, I do have something planned. I guess I'll figure that out once we get there, eh? So let's go ahead and move right into The Devil's Advocate. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone, I'll raise up my voice that you may hear. To the east and to the west I beckon. To the north And to the south, I show a sign proclaiming a death to the weakling, wealth to the strong. Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the devil's advocates. 
Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Apocalypse Now by Peter H. Gilmore. This is in the Satanic Scriptures, a book that has just been re-released, and you should pick it up as soon as you can. If you haven't already, that is. So this article, Apocalypse Now, talks about... I think you could call it, you could refer to it as a tool used by Christians from the dawn of time. And I say the dawn of time, but realistically, as Christians go, since Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea at 325 AD sort of financially aided in the creation of the pre-King James Version of the Bible as we know it today. Um, And yes, it was very much because of money and to as a last-ditch effort, unify a failing Rome. Apocalypse Now speaks to that Christian tool that is used to keep people on their side of things. The end is nigh. We are in the end of times. Make sure you follow these rules and donate your money so that you can go to heaven because the world will end very soon. And this is an idea that has been going on for, as I mentioned, a long time. It's sort of, um, and I don't don't know if I want to say because of the Church of Satan and the official formation of Satanism and the Christian attempt at crushing it in the Satanic Panic era and failing... But this sort of hyperbolic rhetoric has really sort of died down in society as we know it. And more and more people are coming out as atheists rather than latch on to this really ancient and very made-up religion of Islamic Judeo-Christianity. And what we've seen now is that, you know, we had this period from the late 80s, early 90s to now, uh, I say now, you know, like 10 years ago, when uh, jihad has been once again raged against the world um, to sort of put us back into that mind frame. And it's funny because what it does is it speaks to the lack of conviction in the Islamic Judeo-Christian world. Their recognition that their philosophy... And their gods are dead. And it's sort of final death throw time. It's like that horror movie at the very end when you just killed the bad guy. And you're walking away. You turn around. Suddenly they get back up really quick one last time. That's pretty much what they're doing. They're getting back up for that one last time trying to drag someone down with them. So yeah, atheists are going to be targeted. Satanists are going to be targeted. And everyone in between that does not adhere to those end-of-time views. And it's, it's really, again, pathetic and sad, but it's a reality that we have to face. On one hand, you can say that 9-11 was a reaction to America's perceived negative influence in the world. And on the other hand, you could see it as a reaction to America's non-secular activities throughout the world. And you can see that democratically throughout all of the Arabian world right now. 9-11, I think, was also partially 
and I say this because they immediately declared jihad, religious holy war, right uh, after the plane struck. You know, it, it had a lot to do with that dying feeling inside. The more influence we gain as a very non-Christian world, uh, the more it scares those very religious. And I can understand how a weak person who is suddenly faced with the death of his weak God might feel intimidated and might want to strike out. I get it. That's how kids react. You know, let the, let the little children play their sandbox games and throw around their sands, declaring their God's the right God, whatever. You know, let, let, let them do it. And really, if the end of times is coming for them, please let it come sooner. Uh, but the reality is, the, the more than 2,000 years of this declared end of days, and it hasn't happened yet, uh, I think even the most religious acknowledge that it's not going to. And realization that they've been living a lie is, oh, I don't know, so sweet. It's so good. And I sort of went off on a little bit here, but uh, in the article, um, he speaks a little bit to that and, and his own interpretation of it and everything. And it's it's worth the read. Pick up the Satanic Scriptures, read Apocalypse Now article, and hell, read the whole book. It's fantastic. Uh, Megas Gilmore is an amazing writer, and he really captures the core resonance of Satanism. You know, it's no wonder he's doing such a fantastic job as our high priest, and for many years to come. So, pick it up, read it, it's worth it, it's great. Let's move on to the Infernal Informant, shall we? Warriors of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the Infernal Informant. The first article, this is from American Thinker, and it was posted on September 1st by Matthew Vadum. 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 Whatever, who cares. Registering the poor to vote is un-American. I love this. Why are left-wing activist groups so keen on registering the poor to vote? Because they know the poor can be counted on to vote themselves more benefits by electing redistributionist politicians. Welfare recipients are particularly open to demagoguery and bribery. Registering them to vote is like handing out burglary tools to criminals. It is profoundly antisocial and un-American to empower the non-productive segments of the population to destroy the country, which is precisely why Barack Obama zealously supports registering welfare recipients to vote. A decade before the motor voter law that required states to register voters at welfare offices was enacted, NAACP official Joe Madison explained the political economy of voter registration drives. Quote, When people are standing in line to get cheese and butter or unemployment compensation, you don't have to tell them how to vote. End quote, said Madison, now a radio talk show host in Washington, D.C. They know how to vote. Like Madison, Barack Obama grasped this basic truth when he worked for Acorn's Project Vote affiliation in 1992. 
All of our people know that politics and voting affects their lives directly, the future president said. If we're registering people in public housing, for an example, we talk about aid cuts and who's responsible. Encouraging those who burden society to participate in elections isn't about helping the poor. It's about helping the poor to help themselves to others' money. It's about raw so-called social justice. It's about moving America even farther away from these small government ideals of the Founding Fathers. Registering the unproductive to vote is an idea that was heavily promoted by the small-c communist Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven, as I write in my new book, Subversion Inc., How Obama's Acorn Red Shirts Are Still Terrorizing Ripping Off American Taxpayers. In an infamous 1966 Nation magazine article, the radical university professors urged that the welfare apparatus be used to destroy the American system. Borrowing a phrase from the ultra-leftist Leon Trotsky, used in one of his many anti-Stalin tracts, The Platform of the Joint Opposition, 1927, they titled their Blueprint for Radical Change, The Weight of the Poor. By weight, Cloward, Piven, Trotsky meant power or influence. All three wanted to use the poor as a battering ram against the systems that sought to overthrow. Trotsky thought too many bureaucrats and middle-class people were involved in the Soviet Communist Party, and that it was moving too slowly in its efforts to change that society. He wanted more poor people in the party in order to overthrow Stalin's obstructionist bureaucracy and clear the way for true communism. Stateside, Cloward and Piven wanted to use the weight of the poor to bring down American capitalism and democracy. These apostles of depravity proposed swamping the welfare roles of state and localities by encouraging people to exercise their welfare rights by applying for public benefits. The theory was that newly cash-strapped state and local governments would demand a bailout from Congress. The fiscal rescue package would take the form of a European-style guaranteed annual income scheme that would drive America well down the road to full-blown socialism. Enlisting the organizing expertise of Saul Alinsky and other veteran community organizers, Cloward and Piven created ACORN's parent organization, the National Welfare Rights Organization, NWRO, to execute their plan. The Cloward-Piven strategy almost succeeded. Liberal Republican governors such as New York's Nelson Rockefeller and Michigan's George Romney quickly surrendered under sturdy assault from NWRO organizers. Burgeoning welfare caseloads brought New York City to the brink of bankruptcy in the 1970s, a fact acknowledged two decades later by then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani blamed the perverted social philosophy of Cloward and Piven, New York City viewed welfare as a good thing, as a wonderful thing. They romanticized it and embraced a philosophy of dependency. Throughout the late 1960s and early 1970s, political support grew for a guaranteed annual income plan. President Nixon supported the proposal, and it came with a hair's breadth of passing Congress in 1972. The movement was aided by Goldberg v. Kelly, a monstrously wrong-headed piece of judge-made law. In the landmark 1970 decision, the Supreme Court ruled 5-3 to three that the brutal need of a poor welfare recipient outweighed society's interest in trying to prevent welfare fraud. Goldberg stated that welfare recipients were entitled to an evidentiary hearing before an impartial decision-maker at which they could call and confront witnesses. 
They were also entitled to receive a written reasoned opinion before being deprived of benefits. The court absurdly declared that a welfare recipient had a property interest in welfare and that this interest deserved due process protections when the government wanted to take that so-called property away. With the ruling, welfare effectively ceased to be a gratuity that could be granted and withdrawn at the discretion of the government. The liberal justice William Brennan considered Goldberg to be the most monstrous decision of his career in the high court bench. According to David Frum in How We Got Here, the 70s, the decade that brought your modern life for better or worse, Brennan was quite right, Frum observed. In the end, Cloward and Pip didn't get exactly what they wanted, but they knew they were onto something. The next step was outlined in a 1983 article titled Toward a Class-Based Realignment of American Politics, a Movement Strategy, which ran in Acorns magazine, Social Policy. The two professors might have well have named it The Weight of the Poor Part Two. This new iteration of the strategy called for the continued use of the poor as a cudgel against the American system. The unregistered poor were rocks laying around, and Jesse Jackson, during his Acorn-endorsed presidential run in 1984. The Marxist duo said massive numbers of new voters had to be registered. Enlisting millions of new and politicized voters is the way to create an electoral environment hospitable to fundamental change in American society. An enlarged and politicized electorate will sustain and encourage the movements in American society that are already working for the rights of women and minorities, for the protection of the social programs, and for transformation of foreign policy. Equally important, an enlarged and political electorate will foster and protect future mass movements from the bottom that the ongoing economic crisis is likely to generate, thus opening American politics to solutions to the economic crisis that express the interests of the lower strata of the population. The objective is to accelerate the de-alignment forces already at work in American politics and to promote party realignment along class lines. Cloward and Piven's long campaign to bring vast numbers of unproductive people into the political process culminated in 1993, enacted by the Motor Voter Law. The law turned welfare offices into voter registration centers and encouraged nonprofit groups to conduct registration drives. It also opened the door to massive voter fraud. The founders anticipated redistributionist attacks on the Constitution, as Benjamin Franklin supposedly said, when the people find that they can vote themselves money, they will herald the end of the Republic. With the help of Cloward, Piven, Alinsky, and Obama, we're well on our way. That's the end of the article, and uh, here's my take. Matthew Vadum, the writer of this article, is very, very ignorant. Alright, so if the poor since the 70s have been voting themselves more money, why are they still poor? Logically, if the poor were capable of voting all of themselves all of this money and redistributing wealth in this very, as you say, Marxist or socialist or whatever-ist you want to add on to it to sound and you know what you're talking about, how about we just stop for a second and think about it rationally? If the poor have so much power, that you're trying to take away their right to vote. Why are they doing so badly right now? Think about that for a second. Because not only does it prove your point ignorant and obviously wrong and obvious as trying to focus the incredibly wealthy into more power than they already have, you're not only showing your hand, but you're literally slapping yourself with it. 
how much demagoguery of the poor are you going to continue to try to convince people of while they're the poor ones? Do you not see? The only people doing well in our economy, in our country right now, are the wealthy. The only people who are drawing class distinctions are the wealthy. When you live in a country where they see a corporate entity, literally a manufactured group of people, as an individual person with an individual right to vote, and you're trying to take that away from the actual people, we have turned our democratic process upside down. And to try to really take away the rights to vote as un-American? Well, (laughs) you are truly the most ignorant person on the planet. What I find so amazing here is that people buy this shit. They read this like, yeah, the poor really are taking away all that money. How insane do you have to be? I, I get the core argument that's sort of used as fuel to this fire, this class warfare anti-poor fire that he's creating here. I understand that no one wants people to live off of welfare and be unproductive. I certainly don't. But equally so, you cannot argue that the poor are voting themselves money when they're poor. (laughs) Like, if they can't even be effective enough to get a damn job, or in your opinion, try to find a job, how could they organize well enough To get your money, because presumably you're on the other side of the fence here. You're on the wealthy side, or else you wouldn't be really writing about trying to strip away other people. I mean, you're you're obviously doing well yourself here, or else you wouldn't be telling people to take your voting rights away. So you're telling them to take their voting rights away. It's understandable. I get it. You don't want people to vote because you're afraid that your views are going to be overturned by the masses. That should tell you a couple things. One, your views are pretty self-serving. Which is okay. That's why we have the voting system we have. Sometimes you're going to be on top, sometimes you're not going to be on top. But to say that everyone you disagree with, or everyone in an income bracket lower than you, doesn't have a right to vote because they're in an income bracket... How do you think you got... Seriously, how do you think you got to be a wealthy individual if you're out there buying this bullshit? How do you think so? On the backs of the poor, that's how. They are your workers. They are the ones working for your minimum wage that you're continually trying to lower. They're the reason why you are sitting on your ass complaining about them. And yet you're sitting on your ass complaining about them. It's amazing. Now look, I there was a time when I came out of the military and I was going through college and um, we were having some genuine hard times. My son was just born and I had to go on to um, assistance as well by the state of Arizona. And I was on it for, I think, two months. It might have been two and a half months. And then I got back off of it because I've got a job and we started, you know, balancing out our our, um, living expenses um, after the big move from Germany to Arizona, uh, you know, getting all of our stuff here and everything. Um, So it was a very tough time for me. And if it wasn't for state and government-sponsored programs like welfare... Uh, I'm not sure I would have been able to pull my stuff together as quickly as I did. Now, the argument to this is that not everyone only does it for two and a half months. But the core to the point is that these systems are here to help us as Americans collectively. So you can't take them away. 
because we as Americans want them and need them. I did, and now I'm off of it paying into it. Now, on the other hand, should we drug test people that are on it? Should we create additional rules for people who are living on it for more than, you know, we deem X amount of time? Well, yeah, I think we should really think about this. But to just carte blanche say that if you're poor or if you're on welfare, you don't get a vote in the American electorate system, that is un-American, no matter how you look at it. We are in a country where every human is created equal. That isn't, isn't that sort of our, our thing? <laughs> right? And yet, and yet we're not. And we're going to continue that trend by making it so some of the people can't vote? Very American of you. <laughs> Seriously. You, you got some balls to say shit like this. <laughs> and to show your hand so blatantly to everyone, whether they're on your side or not. It's, uh, it's very transparent. It's very self-serving. And it's very absurd. Uh, but good luck with it. <laughs> we'll see how many people uh, end up getting their votes struck down because they're not in your income bracket. We'll see. Let's move on to the next one. Apocalyptic GOP is dragging us into a civil war. This was posted September 7th, and I'm getting this from Rolling Stone Politics. (laughs) Seriously. Had a friend sent me this article by former Republican staffer Mike Lofgren under the subject line, Informative Reading for Tonight's Republican Showcase... I'm probably late in seeing it, but Lofgren's piece raises fascinating and terrifying questions about the future of our political system and the increasing possibility that we're headed towards something like a civil war or a constitutional crisis. Lofgren, in describing the reasons for this defection from the Republican Party, describes a Republican camp that increasingly acts not like a traditional peacetime political organization, but more like an apocalyptic cult or one of those authoritarian movements from early 20th century European history. In particular, the insane decision to turn the once routine procedure of raising the debt ceiling. Lofgren notes that it was done 87 times since World War II into a political crisis revealing that the GOP party mainstream has sunk to the level of terrorism, holding our economic system hostage in exchange for political concessions. This was the form of violence and a serious escalation, even from the days of George W. Bush, when the party was mostly limited in its willingness to use human beings as pawns in homicidal ploys for political power. Bush and Rove were willing to sacrifice Iraqi lives and the lives of American servicemen for oil and votes, but this current crew of Republicans shook canisters of kerosene over the entire American population and threatened to light a match if it didn't get what it wanted. As Lofgren notes, this was insurrectionary, revolutionary behavior. Only the massive scale of the gamut prevented it from being easily identified as terrorism and criminal blackmail. If in exchange for not defaulting on our debt, Boehner, Hensarling, Cantor and the rest of them had asked for a billion dollars worth of gold bullion deposited in Swiss bank accounts, or the release of a dozen Bader Minoffs from German prisons. It could hardly have been much different from what they actually did. I think most Americans can agree that reducing the public debt is a goal we can all share. And in the old days of 30 or 40 years ago, when Congress operated on a more 
collegial model that involved members from opposite parties getting together on weekends to achieve reasonable compromises over golf and highballs, the R&Ds would have found a way to press forward with reasonable deficit reduction plans without pushing us all to the edge of a cliff. But for the new GOP, compromise of any kind defeats their central purpose, which is political total krieg. This party's entire reason for being is conflict and aggression. There is no underlying patriotic instinct to find middle ground with the rest of us because the party doesn't have a vision for society that includes anyone outside of that tent. I've always been queasy about piling on against Republicans because it's intellectually too easy. <laughs> I also worry a lot that the habits, pundits, have of choosing sides and simply beating on the other party contributes to the extremist tone of the culture war. But the time is coming when we're all going to be forced to literally take sides in political conflict far more serious and extreme than we're used to imagining. The situation is such a tinderbox now that all it will take is some prominent politician to openly acknowledge the fact of a cultural civil war for the real craziness to begin. Reading Lofgren's piece and a piece by John Judas of the New Republic makes one realize that we came pretty close to real chaos in the debt ceiling debate. Had Obama invoked emergency powers to raise the debt limit unilaterally, and I think he had good reasons to do that, we might have had a revolt on our hands. Most people aren't thinking about this because we're so accustomed to thinking of America as a stable, conservative place where politics is a is not a life-or-death affair, but more something that people like to argue about over dinner as entertainment almost. But it's headed in another more twisted direction. I'm beginning to wonder if this election season is going to be one none of us ever forget. A 1968 on crack. Anyway, I hope I'm wrong. And I hope everyone reads this Lofgren piece, which is a rare piece of insider insight. And that's the article. Alright, so this is hyperbolic rhetoric. Very, very common, usually from the extreme left or the extreme right. It is expected to be said. But, as with any hyperbolic rhetoric, there is some truth to it. The current GOP is nothing like its predecessor has ever been. And apocalyptic? Well, I would say so. And this is literally to thank uh, by the Tea Party and the Republicans' fear of becoming completely insignificant. They're kowtowing to the Tea Party's rhetoric because without the Tea Party members, there really would be no Republican Party. So they agree a lot with what the real Republican platform is. I don't agree with these current batch of Republicans in the government. I think they're all truly corporatists, not Republicans. And there's a gigantic difference. So what does this mean? Is there really going to be a civil war? No, there's not going to be a really a civil war. And why? Because the tiny, tiny fraction of society that really is up in arms about crap like this, whether they're on the right or left, are still a tiny, tiny fraction of society. And though, yes, when we have a 24-hour news cycle and the media is focused solely on politics, it seems like it's getting big and bad and scary? Honestly, no, it's not. <laughs> we only exist as a country with as much diversity as we do because the fringe doesn't own us. They may own the airwaves. I grant that. They may own the politicians. I grant that. 
They don't own us. And it's our consumption. It's our willingness. It's our willingness to go along with the society that they're ruling over that keeps things in check. So don't get up in arms. Relax. The realistic side of this next election may be hyped and it already is getting that way now. But it's just an election. That's it. Uh, like the who said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And yes, I do think that there is a fraction of a chance that we can change this from a corporatist society to a uh, republic again. But I don't think the population really wants that. I really think we are happy with this bickering and very Romanesque way of living. That's kind of the bread and butter of my show. <laughs> and without it, what would I talk to you about? Moving honeybees around? <laughs> I can only do that for so long, you know? <laughs> Three times a year tops. All right. That's it for the Infernal Informant. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to dive right into the interview with Shiva Rodriguez in The Creature Feature. Are you looking for music from the 80s and the new wave post-punk and other hits? Jay Nothing, the host of The Metro, will take you back to the 80s with songs that made the decade of me so memorable. Get the weekly updates at RadioFreeSatan.com. And remember, Hail Satan. Hello, my name's Dave Ingram. And I'm Donovan. And we are Metal Breakfast Radio. Inviting you to join us with a few beers each week. For a dose of metal scrutiny. Some verbal skullduggery. And a hell of a lot of rubbish. Rubbish! Find us on metalbreakfastradio.com, darksentinel.dk, and radiofreesatan.com. are different than cats and hey what if jack nicholson were hey what if we are the world was sung by the cast of friends i think it might go something like this hi everyone i'm jay leno anyone remember when i was funny eat doritos ladies and gentlemen jane cook are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief, a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Prepare for incoming message. 
I am Matt, host of Deep Six Radio. And I am in Russ. Yes, we are. So if you want to be one of the six taking on the oh-so-lovely Idris and want to be featured on the show... Send your emails... And MP3s... To us at... Deep6... At RadioFreeSatan.com Include a bio... And anything you want mentioning on air... We are open to any genre... Apart from rap... Deep6 also includes a fine selection of alternative rock... As well as multiple other genres... So why not jump on the roller coaster? That is Deep6 Radio... Deep6 is available on... RadioFreeSatan.com And also iTunes... A week later, we, we look, look forward, forward to, to you joining us. End of the line. The sky is dark, moon piercing the night. Through the trees, the damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She is swamp water slowing her escape. The creature nears. The damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as her last effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. I'm being joined by none other than Reverend Shiva Rodriguez. I'm very lucky to have caught her between projects. Uh, Reverend Shiva, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Good. I was wanting to have you on the show for a couple... Uh, actually, since I've started the show, you were sort of one of my white whales that I've really wanted to get on here to um, talk about your profession and your experience. I'm always interested... I follow you on a couple different... Um, social networking sites and you know whenever you post up pictures and stuff like that I always find it so interesting um, uh, just the field that you're into it, it's it's really fascinating but before we get into that proper can uh, can you maybe tell me a little bit about yourself oh broad question yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, so what is your official title or position? Um, how would you define it, I, I should ask? Um, it, it really depends on the project. Um, most of the time I'm acting as either the uh, makeup, uh, key makeup, or I'm working as the VFX supervisor, or you know, sometimes I even jump in as an art director if I'm doing you know, makeup and costumes and set dressing. and you know, It really depends on the job. and what my responsibilities are per job. Yeah. So, I mean, as a broad term, we could just say creative genius and we'd be able to cover all the grounds, right? <laughs> sure, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> nice. If I can get a, a little bit personal, I ask this question to virtually everyone here. When did you first realize you were a Satanist? Um, I can't give you an exact date, but I know right. it was, Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it was, well, I know it was before I was my te- in my teens when I first read the Satanic Bible. Nice. No, I'm gonna, I'll tell you about like 11, 12. <laughs> no, it's okay. And how, how long was it until you uh, actually joined the Church of Satan proper? Um, well, I was a latecomer. I didn't join until, I think it was 2002 is when I joined. Um, I waited until I was about 30, and then everybody figured it wasn't a phase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. 
if you don't mind me asking, what was what was it that I don't know? I guess was the the final deciding factor in joining versus just being since you've been a Satanist for so long, you know, recognizing yourself as such. What was it that made you actually join and, and uh, declare uh, yourself with the organization? Uh, the short answer would be my husband introducing me to the internet. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I'm a terrible technophobe, and um, he introduced me how to work the internet. So, of course, the first thing I typed into the search engine was Satanism because I you know, knew about the Church of Satan. I just didn't know how, you know, if it was even still going on. It's not like you could go to a cafe and meet up with other U.S. people yeah. in your hometown. So I went online and started running into, you know, the social forums and whatnot, getting to meet people on there and then in person later on. And it just seemed like, you know, hey, it's better than what I thought it would actually have been, at, you know, within so much time passed. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead and joined up. Nice. So, I mean, if we can transition really quick here to your professional life, what? When did you first find an affinity for makeup design or FX design? Oh, uh, when I was about, I guess, six or seven years old, to be honest with you. Oh wow! Yeah, um, my parents were both in the uh, theater community, so I was getting used to seeing my dad like putting on fake beards. And, nice. You know, the whole being able to transform into another character just fascinated me. And then, as I got a little older, he would rent me horror movies. And um, I'd be studying them, and my mom would freak out, thinking that you know I was going to grow up to be a serial killer or something. <laughs> and then she realized I was learning how they were doing it because then I started practicing on my little brother. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pretty young when I first started really getting fascinated with the idea of being able to make things look like they're really happening. Yeah. So when you were going through school um, as a young woman, did you? specifically take classes or courses with that in mind? I mean, is this something that you always knew you wanted to do, or you just liked doing it? Well, I would have loved to have taken courses, but back when I was in high school, there was no such thing as killing people 101. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not entirely sure there is now. (laughs) Yeah, I was really active in the drama department, and then also we had a television production class that I was one of the uh, charter members of. They had just started it up, and they only had like eight of us that were allowed to take the class, and I was one of those. And um, so they always put me on, like, you know, learning stop-motion animation or doing all the makeup and doing all the weird stuff. So that was my, you know, schooling, per se. Yeah. Did you grow up um, also with uh, that genre of film, like like horror films and gore films? Oh, it was my bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind me asking what your favorite movie is? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I pick a favorite like every other day. Yeah, yeah. Um, favorite franchise right now as it stands is the Saw franchise. Oh, really? Like, there has to be a lot of technical work with all of those. Yeah, I just, I love the creativity of the traps. And I like the villain who, you know, has brain cells to bang up against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as favorite film, as far as, you know, as a makeup artist, my favorite still, and has been for, gosh, since the 80s. American Werewolf in London. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was one of my first horror films ever, and I, I absolutely yeah. agree. It was amazing. <laughs> that was one of those films that I think anybody who does serious creature makeup looks at and goes, oh my gosh, how did they do that? <laughs> <laughs> Still today, that's awesome. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing transformation. 
So on your on your professional side of this, um, after schooling, what was your first break? <laughs> I didn't get one right away. Um, when I graduated, I had been putting in for apprenticeships, and I kept getting the, but you're a girl, uh, answer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. For some reason, there was an idea that women weren't cut out to do horror effects, so I kept getting thrown in wardrobe department. Oh, man. So I learned to sew and, you know, learned how to build sets and things like that, and then eventually, um, I started being able to get little gigs like haunted houses and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And it wasn't until my husband and my boyfriend decided to start working on, like, films and whatnot that they actually were like, hey, you get to do the effects, and <laughs> that's what kind of got me into film. Nice. I, I wonder, do you think that that actually helped you in the long run, um, the working on sets and um, sort of working behind the scenes? Do you think that added anything to your, you know, what, what you would consider you as your, your abilities now? Oh, yeah. Um, being able to take, like, all the theatrical experience and then taking what I know about wardrobe and know what I know about prop making and things like that really makes it a lot, I don't know, easier. Yeah. I suppose would be the best way to put it. Because I can think in terms of, oh, well, I need something to attach this, and I can just whip this up on the sewing machine where, you know, somebody who doesn't have that experience might be looking around for somebody who knows how to sew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, it, it does help me with figuring out gags. I would have imagined that that, I mean, it, it, I can only imagine how frustrating it would have been during the time, but now, it, I guess misogyny aside, it, it would have been, <laughs> you know, nice that you do know it. Um, you know, the, yeah. Well, it is tough. I mean, I understand that, you know, there is, it is a very male-dominated field, and people don't like to think of a woman as even being able to think some of the things that I have to actually plot out in my head in order to make something work. Nice. <laughs> so I, I understand why that attitude, and I'm glad that it's starting to change. I mean, you, you are starting to see more women in the horror industry, but back in the, you know, early 90s, was real hard. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm, I can only imagine. So, I don't know if you, you can do this, but is there any way that you would be able to run us through maybe a generic day on the set for you? Like, you know, what does it sort of entail? Is it just like, as soon as you get on the set, it's just like, work, 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 or is it more just uh, thinking and then constructing? I mean, what what is the process like for you? Okay, you want a uh, generic day on the set? If possible, yeah. And no such creature. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> every every project's different. I um, mean, I can give you a typical rundown. Usually I'll have, like, a director or a producer uh, contact me and, and tell me what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's they need somebody stabbed in the shower or they need somebody shot or, you know, they'll give me a general idea and then I'll ask them a bunch of questions like, you know, where is it going to take place? How close is the victim? What kind of gun are we using? Well, yeah. And once they give me all the pertinent information, then, and they'll send me pictures of the actor if I have to do any, you know, elaborate makeup on those person. Then I'll plot out different ways to do the fix, and then I'll get back in touch with the director and say, okay, we can do it this way, this way, this way. They'll tell me what sounds good, and then the day of the shoot, or even the rehearsal, I'll pack up all my gear and I'll pack up not only what they said but also everything else just in case plan A doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Because with effects, 
you have to have at least three plans in play. Oh, wow. So I'll go to the set. I'll, uh, most people will uh, smile nervously when I show up with my little black blood box. <laughs> <laughs> Things are going to get really messy. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I meet the actor. I try to let the actor know exactly what's going to happen at all times. Um, if it's like heavy prosthetic work, they can get a little claustrophobic. Yeah, I can imagine. But as soon as I get on a set, my chief responsibility is the actor that I'm working with. Um, I've been on sets where you've had actors who are really nervous, especially ones when they're working like nude or semi-nude, and I've become like their pit bull. Yeah. <laughs> While I'm working with them, you know, making sure people don't act inappropriately or whatnot on the set, which unfortunately you do get sometimes when you're working with small independent companies. Yeah. But uh, I'll pretty much stick with the actors I'm, you know, working with with the effects. Make sure that they know what else happening. Uh, make sure that they're safe. And we'll get in front of the cameras and we will execute the effect as many times as we need to. Oh wow! So we can get it to work. Has there ever been a time and where you just run through it so many times you just run out of materials? Um, we almost did last week, actually. Oh, wow. Um, I was, I was mixing up extra blood, you know, in between days. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But it was a really tricky shoot, so... Yeah. I should have probably brought an extra quart, but... <laughs> oh, wow. So but that... Yeah, you do... You do run into that sometimes. And, and that was videotape that you were working on last week? Yeah, um, I believe the project is actually called Affirmation, but their working title is Videotape. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what would you say is the most challenging project that you've worked on? Uh, that would be the video. <laughs> wow. What was the the, the effects that that was uh, so challenging? Well, it by itself it's a very simple effect. It's a gunshot to the head mm-hmm. where um, a man shoots a woman at very very close range and oh, shit. her brains blowing out the back of her skull. The effect itself is simple, but what made it so challenging was that it was an entire three-minute scene that was done with the camera rolling continuously. The uh, shot was was supposed to look like an old VHS videotape of a militant group invading a farmhouse. So there couldn't be any cuts in the film. Yeah. And it just required a lot of coordination because... um, I had my husband with me acting as my assistant. Nice. And we spent much of our time just ducking in and out of camera range in order to, <laughs> you know, get things set up. Making sure the camera wasn't pointing at us as we're rolling into position, rolling out of position before the body drops. <laughs> oh, wow. It, it took several takes to get that right, but um, just for the sheer core, you know, the timing, split-second timing on that was what made it the most difficult thing I'd ever done. Wow. So... Yeah, we couldn't just tell them stop the camera and we'll edit it here. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Photoshop us. <laughs> oh, it, it was horrifying. And then working while we've got an actor who's struggling and I'm almost getting kicked in the face. Oh, jeez. Trying to rig up, you know, bloodlines and whatnot. It, it it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It probably would have been more fun if it hadn't been raining all morning and I'm like falling around in the mud. But oh man. <laughs> Hence the current cough, right? Yeah. <laughs> That has a lot to do with why uh, three of us in here are, like, really sore. <laughs> <laughs> It'd almost be really interesting to have sort of, uh, you know, that 
that third person camera just watching you do the set, uh, you know, the effect while the cameras are rolling and everything. Yeah, accompanied by Benny Hill music would have probably done a trick. <laughs> nice. Uh, let me ask you, do you prefer to work on these projects by yourself, or do you have sort of a team that's like your go-to team for these effects? Well, usually I work by myself, but I can't, you know, always do everything by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband, Ducky, is, um, he's been working with me for years, and he's familiar with the makeup effects and things, and he's also really good at telling me how there's always an easier way to do anything I'm planning. <laughs> nice. And I bring him along with me whenever it's something that's going to be really technical, like a gunshot. We had to, you know, build a rig or something for it. And then uh, Reverend Gareth Pettibone is my other partner, and he's very good with character makeup and face painting and things like that. So if there's going to be a lot of face painting or a lot of, you know, like a million zombies or something we have to do, he'd be my choice to bring with me on a gig like that. Right. And of course, the three of us have worked together for like you know eight or nine years now. So. Oh wow! So, yeah, so you, you know, not always on effects, but also on other projects, and so we're pretty familiar with you know being able to bark out orders with each other and speak our own language and getting mm-hmm. stuff. Nice. What would you consider your favorite project that you've worked on so far? Oh, that's a really difficult question. You know, there are always some that you know, I have stories for all of them. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. of it would be a little short film I did a couple years ago that uh, Gareth was directing called Intervention. And that one was a little short that I had actually written in order to do a film challenge that we just didn't have time to do. And then he wanted to produce it. So we thought, okay, let's do it. And I wasn't thinking at the time about how hard it was going to be (laughs) to do the effects for it. But the effects are ridiculous. I mean, we we basically got somebody with this and have whole hamburgers falling off. Whoa! Wow. That's... that's You know, it was a cast of four people. We completely covered my living room with blood. In fact, I think there's still blood on the the Venetian blind. Oh, man. It it was a real bloodbath. It was a lot of fun. Wow. (laughs) Definitely one of the most interesting things I've done. So being a lover of the genre and and really having that be a you know just your your professional life as well I would imagine it would be really challenging to detach yourself when you're watching a movie for enjoyment do you find that you just cannot put yourself into that mode and be scared or or can you still be scared by movies uh, I I have a hard time remembering what some movie scared me Yeah I have uh, I I can be surprised by movies if their timing's a little off mm-hmm. uh, the last one would have been the original Final Destination during that infamous bus scene. Yeah. You know, I'm so familiar with horror timing, and that thing just came out of nowhere, so I did jump on that. <laughs> but as far as, you know, being grossed out or being made to feel uncomfortable or, you know, sickened or horrified or, you know, checking my closet and under my bed at night, nah. <laughs> wow. Do you miss that at all? I don't remember ever having it. Oh, wow, okay. So yeah, you were like just said, made with that. Came from theater, so I was brought up on Edward Gorey and Sweeney Todd. So. Wow, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Wow. 
So when you were, um, you know, helping out your father and, and sort of doing this as, um, you know, just observing as a child, did you ever see, I mean, is this a dream of yours, you know, growing up, or did you imagine your life being where you are right now? I I was really hoping it would turn out this way. Nice. <laughs> um, you know, I, at first I thought that I was going to like being like in the spotlight. Uh, my father was really pushing me into getting into acting, but by the time I got into my teens, I just started realizing that it was more fun being, you know, behind the scenes and doing things rather than in, a, in front in the spotlight. That's great. So... But then, I mean, I guess, in a way, you are still in this spotlight, you know? I mean, your work is. Oh, yeah. Well, that, and if I go on a set, everybody knows who I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makeup artists do tend to become, like, minor celebrities when it's big effects. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> nice. So if there's anything that you could change about your professional life, uh, what would it be? I would have probably been a little bit more rapid about getting into my into this particular field a lot sooner than I did. Oh, really? Yeah, I think I probably would have, you know, really fought back with the whole, you know, well, but you're a girl thing. <laughs> I don't think I'd go so, so far as to, like, change my gender, but, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that would be... I, I was taking a drink and almost spit out. That would be a... a, a, <laughs> a really, um, a hell of a reaction. Oh, yeah? Not anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Time. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, that's the only thing I think I would have changed. So what are you working on right now? If you can uh, say. Well, I can say. Um, let's see, in about two days, I get to go over to Tampa, and from what I understand, I'm eviscerating one woman and then smashing another one's head into a tree. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, a typical job. <laughs> are you ever approached for jobs that... You just don't think are going to be interesting or challenging enough, and turn them down. Um, so far I haven't run into that problem. There, the only time I really turn down jobs is if I think that the person who's producing or directing is just so. Uh, how do I put this nicely? Amateur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> where it, where it just, where it doesn't have a grasp of what all goes into it. Um, I turned down a job last year where somebody wanted me to actually do one of my dream gigs. Oh, no. Which is, well, I really want to do an on-screen decapitation. I think it'd be fun. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, a head or a limb, or does it matter? What now? A head or an arm, does it matter? Oh, no, a decapitation, that's a head coming off. Okay. And doing it on-screen in full view of the audience is really tricky to do it right. And I really want to do one, and I put in uh, for a job that would require that. And then after talking to a director and realizing that he thought that this effect was only going to cost like $30. Oh, jeez. What? <laughs> it was like, um, no, you don't get that for that kind of budget. And then having him argue with me on this, it was, I, I had to turn it down. It was like, you know, I'm, if I'm going to put my name on something, it's not going to be a mannequin head rolled across the floor. Oh, yeah, seriously. So, so, things like that are the only times I actually turn down jobs, is, is if they're going to be so ridiculously that I don't want my name on it. Yeah, yeah. Are there any Are there any jobs that you've done that you sort of shy away from admitting to? 
Not yet. I thought I had one earlier, but then I found out that uh, people actually like the effect. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's fantastic, then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm my hardest critic. If I'm on a set and things aren't quite going the way I want them to, I'll beat myself up over it. <laughs> and it's not until, you know, several weeks later, people are like, oh, we saw the footage. It's excellent. It's wonderful. It's like, oh, I guess I did do okay. <laughs> nice. So in doing research for this interview, I, I ran into your professional blog, um, and you have a ton of things going on. I mean, you are involved in just a ton of different projects. How do you find the time? Well, um, <laughs> I work from home. I don't have a day job, so... Mm-hmm. That frees up a lot of time. And I don't sleep very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to help. <laughs> and I'm just one of those people that if I'm not doing something, I go insane. Wow. <laughs> so I, I, I don't normally overextend myself, but I do have a lot of different interests, and I do have you know, talents in different fields, so I do try to round it out. Uh, for example, the summer filmmaking season is about ready to close here, and then I'll be going for a few months where nobody's going to be in production, which gives me time to write. Nice, <laughs> nice. Is that is that a passion that you've fallen into, or have you always loved to write? Oh, I've been writing since I could hold a pencil. Oh, nice. Uh, it, was, it was never something that I really thought of, it, thought of as being you know, any commercial value, but apparently other people think differently. <laughs> And that's a good thing, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me jump on that really quick, if I can. Um, so I was talking to uh, Reverend Bird, and I guess he's inking one of your stories, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that is. And this is under Siren Productions? Well, actually, he and I are forming our own company. Oh, okay. Uh, my company, Siren, is just kind of umbrellaing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Just to make things a little easier for us, he and I are not exactly in the same state. Right. So when we get together, it usually involves a long road trip. Nice. But yeah, he's uh, inking a graphic novel that uh, I had originally written in to be a screenplay, but the budget for this would have been like up in, you know, millions and millions and millions and nothing that I'd be able to raise money to produce myself. Yeah. And I'm always a little hesitant to sell my writing because I know that somebody will screw up the ending. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. So I was uh, actually talking to uh, Gareth and he was like, well, why don't you turn this into a graphic novel? If you release that first, then nobody can screw up the ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was, you know, I was thinking about the artists I knew and Daniel was... Uh, I think he had gone to school for sequential art and just never had the opportunity to really do it. So I sent him the script and said, what do you think? And he was like, I'm on it. Nice. (laughs) So uh, that became the start of a very beautiful relationship. Very, very cool. I'm I'm pretty excited to read a little bit of this story. Just just from seeing some of the early, early on Inks images that he has posted, I think it's like two of them. It wasn't anything... um, really divulging of the, the content of it, but after talking to him briefly about it, I, I'm, I'm really stoked to see this thing finished and to, uh, you know, read the story that you've woven. It's, from what I'm told, is an amazing story. Yeah, we're, we're really proud of it. Uh, my husband co-wrote it with me because he 
uh, a little bit more familiar in some of the aspects of the story than I would be, mm-hmm. um, particularly like, you know, ancient military aspects and things like that. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, it's, it is a really, really interesting story. It's uh, based in, it's based in Greek mythology, but it's a really different take on things than, you know, what we're used to seeing. Cool. And I'm going to shut up about it before I give away too much. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I can't fault you that. Well, what about um, jumping onto another one of your projects, uh, Headless Historicals, right? Mm-hmm. So, are the is this all you creating this, or is this um, you and, and some friends, or what? Uh, this is me and Gareth again. Wow, um, he's kind of like my partner in crime in almost everything. If it's not one guy, it's the other, or it's all three of us. Yeah. <laughs> but um, now, Headless Historicals is uh, Gareth and I. We came up with that, I think, in I want to say 2003, but I might be wrong. This is great, and it's really, really creepy. So, essentially, these are just people in history in doll form in their sort of end state, I guess you could say? Mm-hmm. The- yeah, they're basically effigies. Uh, most of them were victims of execution. Some of them were just in horrible accidents. But uh, I'm a big history buff, and so is Gareth, so we were sitting around and uh, coming up with a list of people who would make good subjects. <laughs> <laughs> so are these all... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go on. I was going to ask if these are all one of a kind or if if they are actually available to purchase or what's the... Okay, yeah, they all are one of a kind. Uh, some of them are still available for sale. Uh, we've, we've done so many of them. <laughs> yeah. Hard to remember exactly who all still up there for grabs, but um, yeah, basically we put them together and then we put them up on uh, our website. And the ones that have been sold are still up on the website to showcase you know the different ones that we've done over the years. Um, we do special orders as well. Oh wow! And we do you know from small little Barbie-sized dolls all the way up to life-sized. Oh wow! That's <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. Well, my next big life-size project. I keep up and down, I'm going to do a full-size Marie Antoinette. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> nice! Yeah, she was just such an amazing dresser and whatnot. <laughs> as soon as I find the time to do her, that's my next one. Nice. And so do you take um, re- requests? So if, if you've created a doll and sold it, would you recreate that doll if there's a uh, request? Well, I never recreate the same doll twice. What I do is I have had a lot of requests for um, Anne Boleyn's a real popular one. Mm-hmm. And I will do a doll that's very similar to one that has been done previously. But because we're using doll forms that we find all over the place, it's really hard to find the same, exact same form. Right. And, um, nice. so I'll, you know, I'll take direction as far as if somebody wants a doll dressed in a particular way or in a particular fabric. But uh, I've We've never had two that were exactly alike. So the the URL for those interested, and everyone should actually go there to check it out, but if, if you're interested, that's headlesshistoricals.com, correct? That's right. Okay. So what is This Critic Is Not Yet Rated? <laughs> that's my play site. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I, I started out just um, what I used to call my public service announcements when it came to watching movies. And this started like 10 years ago. (laughs) I would uh, watch movies and then I would post my reviews on them 
from an artist aspect and a horror movie fan. Mm-hmm. And um, people started actually taking my suggestions. Nice. <laughs> and then it got to the point where people were asking me, hey, can you watch this movie? And it dawned on me that they were having me watch them to pick out the bad ones so they wouldn't have to watch them. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so when I started getting more involved in filmmaking and then I started being able to pick things apart a little bit more on a technical level, so I finally just gathered all of my old reviews, put them on the website for, or the blog for uh, This Critic Is Not Yet Rated, and just kind of kept that going and invited a few other people to you know, contribute if they wanted to. Ideally, I'd like to get a few more people who are actually in filmmaking to, to uh, add their reviews as well. Yeah. But it's just a, it's a different way of, um, you know, talking about movies. Uh, giving people a heads up if something really stinky is out there. <laughs> and then one thing I've been trying to do is get people to submit their own movies to it for criticism because that's one of the things that you really have a hard time finding is honest opinions about your own work. Oh, yeah. I mean, you take it to your friends and they're all going to say, oh, that was wonderful, even if it's, you know, blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to... Uh, make it the site so it was just filmmakers who were reviewing but then also give them the opportunity to post their own work for people to give us feedback on you know the films that we make wow I might have some people to suggest uh, where can where can people contact you to maybe be included as a potential not only reviewer but to have their work reviewed um basically it's easiest to get hold of me through any for anything my website at uh, Um There are links to all the different projects, including the uh, movie review site, right up there. Okay. Um, it's pretty much my catch-all page for everything I do. I always post the links there. Nice. Critic, the critic site is a fairly new thing. I mean, I think I put that up last year, and I really haven't had nearly as much time as I would like to to dedicate to it hence I keep looking for more reviewers right <laughs> nice but I think people who have been following me for a while understand that if I'm not watching movies for you know two or three months usually because I'm out making them yeah no one can fault you for that because we love to see the effects you create anyway right well um thank you so much for joining me Shiva it's been a true pleasure talking with you um and I hope that in the future when this graphic novel or another project crops up that you would um you know, come on and, and maybe talk to me about it and maybe spread the word a little bit. I'll be happy to. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again, and uh, until next time, Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Well, I think that's going to do it for another show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate your time. I know that went a little bit longer than you used to. I, I thought the interview was really fantastic, and I didn't want to edit out any of the content we talked about a lot of things and I think that it was I think it was worth it uh, if you did sit in through it I would love to hear from you <laughs> visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com let me know of any suggestions critiques corrections or general comments you might have you can visit the Undercroft Facebook Twitter or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics I'm also on Google Plus so add me to your circles there 
You can also listen to the show through Radio Free Satan or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com or subscribe via iTunes by searching 9cents. And don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. If you'd like to meet other Satanists, visit undercroft at satanet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, hail Satan.